Talk Radio 570 KVI. It's KVI Want to Know Weekends. KVI Want to Know Weekends. Get ready to raise a toast with Seattle's most spirited hour of talk, Happy Hour Radio. Explore the best in Washington wines, beer, spirits, food, and more with your guide, Seattle sommelier, Christopher Chan. It's Happy Hour Radio, right now on Talk Radio 570 KVI. Well, good evening, Seattle. Good evening, Puget Sound, and welcome to Happy Hour Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Chan, event sommelier, your weekend wine guy, and your commodore of cocktails. So excited that uh, you're joining me every Saturday night right here on 570KVI. And if you ever miss a show, tell your friends to check it out. Uh, it's on the Internet. Uh, you can find us at happyhourradio.net. We've got a whole host of shows, our library of 140-plus. Been doing this for about three years, and I almost got a hang of it. That's coming along. Um, I'm excited about today's guest. Uh, Miss Joanne Wing is actually from New Zealand. She's got this great accent, but she's making wine in California. And one of the iconic wineries, Stag's Leap Winery, uh, there are two down there. Um, but this one is the one that makes the Petite Syrah, and uh, that's why I'm excited, because you remember a couple shows back, we, we at least a sway on with Three of Cups Winery. Talking about Petite Syrah, and really, um, this is one of the, uh, we'll call the godmothers in this case, about that particular grape. It's, uh, I believe it comes from Croatia, it's called Duraf, but here it's in America, it's called Petite Syrah, and maybe I'll be corrected on that. But Joanne Wing, hey, welcome to Happy Hour. Thank you, thanks for having me. Um, so let's talk about you. You've got this great accent from uh, that little island chain uh, outside of, just off Australia, right, 1,100 <laughs> miles away. Uh, how'd you get into wine? Um, I started out in a, well, in New Zealand, uh, growing up around horticulture, so always exposed to the kind of farming of it, and uh, at 19, started started drinking a little bit more wine and thought, hey, you know what? I want to make this. I want Was to that the it. drinking age back then? Uh, it's 18. It's 18, 18, but you took yeah. a year, a sabbatical, so to speak. Well, it was mostly beer at that point. Oh, so. I see. I <laughs> see. You graduated. Before I graduated to wine, so I thought, Stein I want to make this right? Stuff. Is that the one yeah, that everyone drinks? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's so fun. And where about in, uh, you, so you're on the North Island and down in New Zealand. Remember, there's two islands, folks. North, mm-hmm. uh, and it's um, Martinborough is the top of the bottom and then Marlboro is the bottom of the top. Top of yeah, other way around. <laughs> Martinboro is the bottom top of the top. Is the Martinboro is the bottom of the top? Yes. yes. All yeah, right. Indeed. I, I got my. I thought that I had this great little <laughs> mnemonic thing, and I still can't <laughs> figure it out. Well, you're on the North Island, mm-hmm. and you said you were in this horse racing horticulture area. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. And you started. What was the first wine you drank? Um, it was actually a. It was about a thirteen dollar Merlot from Australia. Oh. Um, and it was probably a magnum at that point because I was a teenager, and that's what you do. It's all about the quantity. But uh. that's, that's right. <laughs> so I went to school for horticulture. I uh, wanted to study the growing of it and spend a bit of time out in the Hawke's Bay, um, mm. you know, some of the fun jobs of leaf plucking and all those kind of things. So really got my hands dirty, uh, mostly out there, and then pursued the winemaking after that. Is there a university in uh, New Zealand that can help Outside of horticulture or agriculture, is, is there something specific dedicated to viticulture? Yeah, there is. So Lincoln University down in uh, just outside of Christchurch, they have a enology and viticulture program. So I ended up back there later on uh, to do enology. 
Interesting. Mm-hmm. And your family background, obviously, you were in horticulture. You have a family, do you have a family farm or something like that? Does you, mm-hmm. you were picking strawberries as a kid? I mean, that's what we did here <laughs> in Vashon Island. We'd go to pick strawberries. Actually, it was asparagus. Was it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's only every four years then, huh? So you wait for a job well, <laughs> in between? <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's once, it's every year, once a year, but it's when it's, when it's on, it's full on. It's, there's a lot of work involved Interesting, in it. Interesting, yeah. yes. And um, it's it's quite remarkable to know how uh, ex- extraneous that um, or strenuous that sort of work is. Mm-hmm. We we have uh, the, the luxury of having a population among our um, constituents here in the state that uh, is is eager to do that kind of work, um, whereas most of my friends are not interested in that. I mean, mowing the yeah. lawn is about the best they could yeah. do. But here you are bending over and picking asparagus. And, mm-hmm. and uh, What's the handle? Is it a sickle or is it just a knife? Just a knife. Just a knife. Yeah. Well, that's not a knife. Well, the- <laughs> <laughs> or working in the uh, pack house too, which which I kind of remember you, you have this conveyor belt of asparagus moving past in front of you. You close your eyes, it's like a barcode. So at the end of the day, after eight hours of that, it's like a barcode constantly moving past oh, your yeah. eyes. It was kind of wow. Kind of what does it pay? What is there a minimum wage in New Zealand? Oh, I couldn't tell you what it is now. I've been over here too long. <laughs> okay, so how did you end up here in uh, well, the United States? Um, so part of the the great thing about winemaking is the people that you meet. So um, working a harvest down in Marlborough, I made some contacts with people from all around the world. So Portugal, Spain, US, um, all sorts of different places, South Africa as well. And a couple of colleagues of mine said, hey, why don't you come to California for the next harvest? So with opposite hemispheres, it's the opposite harvest. So right now New Zealand's in the thick of it. Um, And yeah, some colleagues of mine just said, come up to Napa. So I did. At seven, I came up and did a harvest at Saintsbury and then thought, yeah, this is where I want to go. So Saintsbury's in Russian River or Sonoma? Or? Uh, Southern Napa. Southern Napa, yep, okay. Yep, down the Carneros. Carneros, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so then went home, went back home, went back to school, and uh, yeah. following year, kept going, went to Australia, worked in the Hunter Valley. Mm. Um, so that was a really good good harvest. A lot of bugs harvest. in the Hunter Valley, though. Yeah, right? and a lot of thunderstorms. Oh, okay. Yep, I remember yep. going there like, Jesus, there's uh, something <laughs> flying on you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's extremely warm. And then uh, back to New Zealand and then ended up back in Napa. And uh, that's when I stumbled across Stag's Leap and haven't left. And it literally stumbled. You were drinking that Magnum or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, you have a restroom. Hello. Yes, hello. Exactly. Uh, so fun. Joanne Wing, you are a New Zealander by native, and now you are a, a Napaite. Or, mm-hmm. um, have you gone, have you used your credentials to investigate and explore the world of Napa wine? Um, I do a bit. Yeah. We, um, you know, there's such a good community in Napa. Um, so my colleagues and I are always, you know, sharing, trading wines and, and visiting other places too. So, yeah, it's a, it's a great community to be in. Yeah. All right. I like, do you travel with a barrel thief? Do you have a holster? You go out and <laughs> wrangle some <Yeah>. samples. <laughs> exactly. So fun. What was your first wine that you made here uh, at Stag's Leap? Uh, so I started out on the white program um, as an enologist. So we have a Viognier and we have a Chardonnay. Mm. Um, so working on those and then... Uh, variety of reads which we can get into sure yeah. and how many wines well let's talk about stag's leap it mm-hmm. was founded it's an old castle it's a very stone it's got a lot of stones in that building mm-hmm. right tell yeah. me about it it's an old manor house so the property was established in uh, 1890 and um it was built as a as a wedding gift actually the chase uh ch- bought by the chase family and it was a wedding gift the house was so um built by local stone and they originally had a winery there on the property as well so the first vintage was 1893 from our wow. estate yeah um and the chase family is is was neither uh 
uh, Italian or French. So I'm curious how they got into the wine biz. Just um, it was investment because I think land in Napa Valley was you know it wasn't established as a wine growing region for at that sure. point. So um, there's a lot of ranching there. So they were able to purchase the land there and for not too not too much. So how many winemakers have uh, worked this land or this particular property over the years, over the century? Over I guess the centuries. Would be, yeah. Um, I don't have the history all the way back to the 1800s, but from um, the 70s, Kaldamani bought the property and he re- basically restored it. So there was a period after Prohibition when um, the property was used as a resort, so people would come out and stay at the cottages, um, train out to Yontville, horse and carriage out to the property, and they were self-sufficient, had, had cows and pigs and everything else there, a little bit of wine as well. Um, and then the property wasn't used for, for several years. So in the 70s was when Carl Damani bought it and started making stag sleep wine again. Um, and then followed on by Robert Britton in the 80s, I believe, and then Kevin Morrissey um, for a time in the 90s. And then Christoph and I started in 2009. Wow. Yeah. All right. Mm-hmm. And that, that was quite a time for the United States, for the whole world, mm-hmm. because we were going through this uh, this rebound and wondering if we <laughs> was going to make it. We saw the, the price of wine actually drop for, for a while, very few times in, in the world's life, or in our life, uh, my lifetime anyway. Um, so how many wines do you make at Stag Sleep or Reproduced? Um, in one year. Um, <laughs> um, the main ones we've got, we've got Cabernet, Petit Syrah, um, Chardonnay. Uh, we've started a few other little programs that are only available in the tasting room. So mm. um, if you come and visit, it's more of a, um, it's, it's an experience because you get the whole history of the property. It's two and a half hours to tour it and then to taste through our whole portfolio. Um, this year, I think we've done 13 different different skews. So. Awesome. Well, I've got a mm-hmm. friend heading down there next week, and I'm going to uh, hit you up to take care of uh, those two, if yeah. you would be so fun. It's so nice. Well, I'm excited. Um, there are two Stag's Leaps, and there's a little story there, and it's a, it's kind of a friendly, not-so-friendly thing. Uh, mm-hmm. What's what's your take on this? You are the <laughs> S-T-A-G-S apostrophe. Yes, that's us. Um, always a... Um, Confusing thing there for a lot of people, but um, so Stagsleep, our property was started in the 1890s, so you know the original property there, and because we you know were operating as a resort at one point, um, there was even a post office there which was being used, um, and we were making wine in the 70s. So when um, that's right, the post office, yeah, I remember uh-huh. that. So when um, Stagsleep Wine Cellars pr- was producing wine in the 70s, and they obviously entered into the the wine competition, the Judgment of Paris, and you know, really put Napa Valley on the map, which has done done great things, and especially for Stag's Leap District. Um, so it was, yeah, a fifteen-year legal battle, <laughs> which ended <laughs> in an apostrophe was the only differentiation. But there are neighbours and our friends, and and uh, you know, you can see why there was contention there for a little while, but. As long as you're both making great wine, it's like, yeah, hey, absolutely. you can't really lose. And, and um, I'm curious, as I'm curious, which winery has the more expensive wine? If, if there's a trophy, like, oh, you know, keep pushing it. Well, we just made the special reserve, and it's, you know, <laughs> handpicked by, who knows, by angels, and so it's very, uh, very special. Um, well, you poured three. We have three glasses of wines in front mm-hmm. of me here. Uh, the Chardonnay is one of the iconic wines, as, as long as well as the Pizza and the Cabernet Sauvignon. Mm-hmm. Now the other. Stag's Leap is Warren Winiarowski, right? Yep. Something like, I can't get his name right. But yep. Shadow San Michel here in Washington State just purchased that property like three, four years ago, mm-hmm. which is pretty exciting. And Marcus Notaro, who was the winemaker for Cole Solari on Red Mountain, is now the winemaker down there. Have you met Marcus at all? 
Briefly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, so there, it's funny how the, this uh, small world that, you know, and, and I know I just had some BC wines here last week, and they were talking about how Vincor and Constellation purchased some of their properties as well. Mm-hmm. So it is a, a very small world of wine. Now, did you... Did you have a, a Napa Valley wine in New Zealand, or did you actually have your first Napa Valley wine in Napa Valley? Uh, no, yeah, they're really hard to get down in New Zealand, um, and extremely expensive. I think the only things, <laughs> and I was working in a wine store while I was studying as well, and I think all we had was Ravenswood on the, oh. this was the only thing we could get, and you know, a couple of Zinfandel, so really my first experience was to actually come to Napa. All right. Because, yeah, we're... And that was in 09? Or uh, 07. 07, okay. 07, yeah. It's interesting too when you think about a, a, a wine region. You, I don't think there's any Zinfandel in New Zealand. No. Yeah, so that's kind of cool that you actually had this one wine that is not grown. There's no competition for this wine, and it's kind of unique. Yeah. Um, are you a Zin fan by chance? Oh, I've found some very good ones. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I know it's one of those things you you got to sort of love. You got to be in that Amarone mo- mood and and just like big wines and. Um, there, there's lots of spectrum of, of flavor and color there. Uh, how many wine? What was your favorite vintage starting in '09? Did you did you did you dread 2011 with the, that cool climate? Yeah, a little bit. It was kind of the most challenging too. I mean, uh, for me as a young winemaker, I learned the most yeah. that vintage definitely because you've got to pull all your tools out to uh, to make sure you're doing you know the best that you possibly can. Um, and then after that, the last few years with the drought has been its, its own challenges as well. But the fruit that we've had is just is is just incredible. So it makes makes my job so much easier. Is everything a state at Stag's Leap? Uh, no, no, we source from other parts of the valley as well. So um, we get Cabernet and Merlot from different parts, and we're focusing on the southern end of the valley for that, um, just because we want less ripeness. Um, sure, less, you get less that. Uh, what's the bay? The Bodega Bay or the what's the? Well, we go well go down to Carneros. Carneros, yeah, yeah. yeah. So we'll get some, some um, of that Chardonnay from there. Well, so yeah, the Chardonnay that you have there is focused on um, Carneros. So seventy five percent of that comes from Carneros, and then we get twenty five percent from Oak Knoll. So the Oak Knoll part of it's a little bit a um, little bit warmer, um, but has more of the stone fruit kind of influence. So rounds it out that way. Awesome. Well, I'm excited to have you here. And we're getting, we have the three wines. We have the uh, Chardonnay, the Petite Syrah, and the Cabernet Sauvignon. Was that the order you poured them? And this last one looks really, really dark. The last one I did it was actually a different one. It's a red blend. Oh, it's a red so blend. So we'll talk okay. about that one. Yeah. Excellent. Well, when we come back from this break, we're going to dive into these three wines and chat more with uh, Joanne Wing, who is uh, now a bona fide Napa Valley resident and a winemaker at one of the most prestigious places in Napa Valley. Uh, folks, you have a website that people can go check you check us out uh, on this break yeah we do stagsleep.com stagsleep no apostrophes mm-hmm. no apostrophes <laughs> stagsleep.com that's a good one uh, I'm sure that being there so early you got that uh, that domain name right away mm-hmm. hey folks we write back on happy hour radio Big names, big news. Sean Hannity, weekdays 3 to 6 p.m., Talk Radio 570, KVI. It's KVI Want to Know Weekends, and you're listening to Happy Hour Radio. Now back to Seattle, Somalia, Christopher Chan. 
Uh, good evening, Seattle. Welcome back. Time for round two. Hope you got something tasty in your glass. You're on your way to someplace delicious. I have three glasses of wine, three bottles of wine in front of me, and a lovely young winemaker, Joanne Wing. She's from New Zealand, uh, from the North Island, and uh, now she's found her way into Napa Valley at one of the iconic wineries, the Stag's Leap. That's Stag's apostrophe Wait, Stags S apostrophe Leap, StagsLeap.com. Uh, we have three wines, a Chardonnay, which I'm really excited about because um, Chardonnay has obviously helped change the world of wine in the United States back in the 80s. California Chardonnay came on strong, and especially after the Judgment of Paris, we figured it all out. Uh, let's talk about this Chardonnay. You mentioned Carneros fruit and yeah, Oaknol fruit. A little bit of Oaknol, yeah. So our Chardonnay, we're um, you know, focusing on freshness. We don't put any of it through malolactic. So you know, people have that opinion of Napa Valley Chardonnay being quite buttery, quite oaky, um, so we're going for the fresher side of it. Uh, no mellow, and only 25% new oak in that one. So. Mm-hmm. And uh, a little bit of lees contact, a little lees stirring, yep. I can get that on the finish. Definitely a lees stirring um, every two weeks on that too, just to you know completely round out the palate. How long um, have you been sourcing from the same areas, or did you change anything after that 2011 vineyard or vintage? Um... No, no, we've maintained our sourcing for the Chardonnay, especially especially Carneros is, you know, ideal for, for Chardonnay production. Um, and as far as our other varieties, we're, for Cabernet and Merlot, we're looking for the southern end of the valley. We're, we're focusing more around Coombsville because um, it's a, lot, a little bit cooler and the tannin profiles that that's we get from down east there. of Napa, right? So that's it's on the east. yeah, yep. southeast. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's great. Did are you a Chardonnay fan? I mean, as a winemaker, yes. you have to be. But when you think about the great wines in the world, was Chardonnay on your list of those wines? I've always been a fan of it because it's so versatile. I'm always I'm always uh, surprised when people say, you know, I hate Chardonnay. I don't want to drink it. I'm like, well, what style of Chardonnay do yes. you not like? You there know, you it's go. you can't put that all in one bucket. It's all you know, so many different styles out there. So it's as, as a winemaker it's the most fun you can be the most creative or least creative if you want to if you <laughs> you know if you have great fruit then you don't have to do much at all that's to it. The, i i made some wine and uh, i still make wine and i realized that that adage is true it, the, the wine is made in the vineyard and because mm-hmm. as a winemaker i mean look i didn't do much i mean the yeast worked harder than i did and they gave their <laughs> life for this wine <laughs> i get to live on have you been to burgundy no i haven't really no Wow. Bordeaux. I did get okay. the opportunity to go to Bordeaux um, and visit there and work a little bit in the winery, but um, yeah. How much production? How, you have one Chardonnay, so you produce this Chardonnay, or do you have more of the classic buttery, oaky? We do. We have a reserve, which yeah, is reserve. Um, available at the winery, and that's more of about 50% Traditional. new oak. Yeah. So still no Malo, um, but we just have a higher oak profile, and we'll barrel. it's a barrel select, so we'll choose the barrels that we go into that. Interesting. Yeah. Do you, uh, uh, not going to Burgundy, but being in Bordeaux, are you using um, Bur- Burgundian Coopers for these wines, or what do you use? Uh, no, for the, um, for the Chardonnay, it's all French, it's all um, Bordeaux. Um, all right. Yeah, style. Um, and then for the only thing we use, we use a bit of American oak actually in the Petite Syrah, which we'll taste mm-hmm. later on. So, Excellent. Yeah. Um, and you produce uh, 5,000, 8,000 cases of this Chardonnay? Uh, the Chardonnay has gone up to about 20. I 20, think, so, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. it's and it's interesting because as a, a winemaker who made, you know, a few hundred cases, um, is it more difficult to make a small amount of wine that's really great or a large amount of wine that's really great? Uh, I'd say both because the... the you know, the larger it gets to maintain that quality, um, I, re- I think it really speaks to, you know, get, getting great sourcing of fruit is the key thing. And, you know, Napa Valley has its restrictions on size. So as long as you can still find the the fruit that you want, then the winemaking just, you know, is a bit easier after that. How long does harvest take for 20,000 case production of Chardonnay? 
Um, we're starting in late August. Well, last few years have been kind of <laughs> early and, and off, but um, you know, fermentation is going for about two weeks, two to three weeks, and then we will um, we're doing seventy five percent of that in barrel. Um, and then we'll rack them out and put them back to barrel and then leave it there for six. So months. we're talking about, let's see, um, close to 90,000 tons or 90 tons of grapes, right, for mm-hmm. Chardonnay for mm-hmm. this project? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I did the math in my head. Yeah. Just <laughs> this is all right. You went on some wine. I'm, I'm energized. Uh, well, let's move on to some of the reds. You have this wonderful blend that I've never heard of. Tell me mm-hmm. about this. I know. So this is a fun one we started in uh, 2012. Um, and what the what the estate's really known for, we have Cabernet Petit Syrah, Merlot, and now we have a little bit of Malbec planted on the property. Um, so we do an estate blend, but then we also, with our Napa Valley tier, so we have a lot of growers that we work with throughout Napa Valley to source the best uh, grapes that we can get. We wanted to have a blend that um, obviously represents us, so Petit Syrah is, mm-hmm. um, you know, we started out with 40% of that in there. Uh, Merlot to bring a little bit of the fruit character in there, so that was about Mid-palette, 40%. sure. Um, and then 20% Cabernet. So 2013 vintage, which you have there, we have grown our Malbec program. So we're able to put 12% Malbec in that. So the name investor is kind of a, a, a nod to the original families that owned the property, which um, were obviously investors. Um, there's varying things, silver silver mines in Mexico and all sorts of things like that. So it's kind <laughs> of a dabble, nod to them. And, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in the alloys, precious it. metals. Yeah. Uh, really cool. I'm just taking a sip of it. It's very well balanced. It has, um, you know, it, the blending allows you to get this great palette of fruits. You get the dark fruits from the Malbec and the Petite Syrah, but you get some of that um, middle plummy fruit from the, the Merlot, mm-hmm. and uh, I think this is a delicious wine. Uh, is this something you started? This is your creation? Or you said, I want to do a blend, we're going to, you know, obviously have Petite Syrah because that's our, our signature? Mm-hmm. Uh, no. Well, teamwork between um Christoph and I, but we were kind of, you know, as a as a company, asked to do something that was a little bit more um, fruit forward and easy to be to be consumed a bit younger. A lot of our wines, you know, they have that absolute ageability, the petites around the cabernet. Um, the invest is something we want to have a little bit more fruit forward and approachable now, but still the ability to age it. Interesting, and um, it I can sense that, and it's one of those challenges because the wine tastes good now. You don't really want to wait. You just like let's open it and it's good, but you you want to wait because um, you want to see. And I think when we think of fine wines, we think of ageability and. And it'll be kind of cool to see how this progresses. So 13 was the first vintage. Uh, 12 was the first vintage. 12 was the first vintage. I see. You said 13 gave you more Malbec. That's Mm -hmm. right. Yep. Um, Did you have the opportunity to taste some library wines from Stag's Leap? I have done a few. Yeah. Yes. Just find some of the the history. I mean, I'm I'm curious how much philosophical uh, imprint is based on, look, this is our style. And can you really say that there is a certain style for the the property? I'm, I'm, I'm just curious, asking. Well, what's been interesting is being able to do the estate uh, tastings. Um, so, you know, Petit Syrah can age so well. I've had some amazing 92s, 93s. That oh, good, because I got a Magnum O2. Really? Outstanding. <laughs> I, was, I was curious. Yeah, the Petit Syrah can age really well. What's been interesting with some of those is, um, you know, we've maintained relationships with a lot of our growers, but uh, knowing exactly where the fruit came from in some of those earlier vintages is difficult to kind of sure. kind of figure out. Unless it is the estate, and then you can see, you know, this is a stag's leap. Those tannins just hold up. You know, stag's leap is unique for that. Um, for the Cabernets, so amazing structure in those kind of wines. So I'm excited. Yeah. Um, I remember standing, looking out to the vineyard with the the, the 
mansion behind you. Um, and to the right was that Petite Syrah area. It was that a field mm-hmm. blend. You had a couple other grapes in there, like uh, it wasn't Morved. It was, I don't know, tell me what you had in there. Yeah, so many. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so that's one of our most interesting blocks. So it was planted in 1929, um, and it is 85% Petite Syrah, and then there's 17 other varieties in it. Yeah. So that's what we call our N- Nikati Melise. That's it, what it was, yes. Yeah. So it is a field blend, um, which is kind of unique. There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of blending happening in a lot of other places. And, you know, we do that with our investor as well. Um, but the Nakati Melise is a true field blend. We harvest everything together at exactly the same time. There is a burger in there, a tanat, a muscat. If there's any muscat left by harvest, because everyone loves to just go out and eat, eat those it, grapes. Eat those grapes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I haven't encouraged anyone to... That's go and find right. well, that. Go yeah. and find that vine. Um, Put a sign. Yeah, and <laughs> netting. The Katie Melise is the uh, the family motto of the Chase family, which means never give in to misfortune. Right. Which is, I think, and they got that cool beautiful uh, stained glass window with yes. that. Um, I remember that. Yeah. That's good. To, I can still remember that. That was about uh, seventeen years ago. I was down in two thousand. Oh, wow. um, final wine. Uh, we get a little bit of time. We should have more time for this wine. Petite Syrah. Yes. Um, it's Croatian. When was this planted at the property? Um, well, the, the oldest one we have was nineteen twenty nine, but we have some back to the seventies okay. as well. And then mm. um, what's been unique is we've had. Um, the clones identified on the property and you know stag's leap is the icon for for petite Syrah. um and there's a couple of clones that are really unique to us and we've found growers um, up the valley so we get some of it from calistoga and calistoga just adds those incredible floral uh, notes to it interesting and then we have 20 percent of that comes from the estate as well so yeah petite Syrah is kind of our flagship and what was the first maybe. vintage uh in modern times Ooh. 70s, yeah, right? Wasn't it 70s, 70, yeah. 78 or something? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's kind of when um, this property really hit its stride, I want to I want to say. And yeah. I may be wrong. I mean, I, I have been known to be wrong. Um, when you think about Petite Sorrel, what am I looking for? Um, incredible spice. Spice, um, fruit. So you're going to get some of those plum, cherry, um, really, really dark red fruits, extremely dark. Um, and then the, the tannins. So... The tannin structure in a petite syrah is something that's really going to, you know, when it's younger, you can feel it a little bit more, but um, something that matches well. All our wines, we want to be able to match with food, so have it with a steak. Have it with a steak. Yeah. And you serve it at the uh, Metropolitan Grill, which has been on that mm-hmm. list forever, yeah. right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I like it. Did you hear that music? I'm thinking I'm being edged, nudged, uh, nudged or something. <laughs> I'm drinking this wine. Um, this is lovely. Do you make large formats of this? I have a Magnum. Is there something more I can aspire to? Um... We haven't for a couple of years. You might we might find one in the library. I'll check when I oh, get back there. Okay. <laughs> well, uh, this has been a real treat. I'm glad that you were able to join me on Happy Hour Radio and Joanne Wing, winemaker at Stags Leap and enologist at Stags Leap Winery. This mm-hmm. the Stags apostrophe no Stags S apostrophe. Thanks yes. for joining me. <laughs> Thank you for having me. <laughs> hey, I love the wines, folks, and we've got more good times coming up on Happy Hour Radio. Stick around right here on 570 He's back, and he's in charge. Kirby Wilbur, live and local, weekdays 9 to noon. Talk Radio 570, KVI. KVI, want to know weekends. Time for another round of Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan.
All right, Seattle. Hey, welcome back to Happy Hour Radio. Time for round three. Hope you got something tasty in your glass. Uh, I got a tasty dude right across from me. I mean, he's uh, he puts on tasty events. Perhaps I should fra- rephrase that. His name is David LeClaire, and uh, he's been a longtime pal, longtime sommelier here in Seattle. And he's the founder of Seattle Uncorked, which was uh, this really cool um, kind of a website uh, online uh Mating game, I want to say. We'll mate you with wine. So, David LeClaire, hey, welcome back to Happy Hour. Hey, thanks for having me. All right, so describe Seattle and Cork for us. SeattleandCork.com. Well, you know, in the West Coast, everybody has wine clubs, but wine clubs are usually you belong to a wineries club and they send you wine on a quarterly basis. And in the East Coast, a wine club is actually people get together and drink wine together. And they <laughs> love, so it's a social thing. So, I essentially created Seattle and Cork as a social way for people to connect through wine rather than it just buying wine. So now it's kind of morphed into us just producing a wide variety of events. Some of them are like Sexy Syrahs in its 16th year, Rosés in its 15th year. So we've been doing it for a long time. So it's less of a club really now and now more of just if you like to hear about events, you go to Seattle and Cork and you sign up and you find out what's going on in the area. Yeah, you opt into emails and uh, you, you get to learn about some uh, great wine deals as well as events. And uh, what was the first event you ever did as Seattle and Cork? So that was Sexy Syrahs. Back when I used to work at the painted table at the Alexis Hotel, mm-hmm. and Syrah was just coming on the scene at the time, and somebody like Christoph from Cayuse would be somebody that you might actually see at an event, where uh, you know he was nobody heard of Syrah. What is Syrah? And you know we were producing it there, and all of a sudden, you know, now sixteen years later, it's kind of old news, but you know <laughs> people still love it. So I finally got my first shipment of Cayuse Syrah, and you know I met uh, I met. Christophe Baron uh, in 1998 at the Rainier Club. He was one of our first wine dinners I did. I got there in 97. Uh, I got Cayuse and uh, Charles Smith that, that year. I was like, hey, we've got to check these new guys out. Right. It goes way back. And I finally, you know, I guess I was on the list before, but um, so fun. So uh, Seattle and Cork, you've got something coming up, man. The, it's the pink season. This is May, and I know it's going to be sunny someday. Yeah, so we've been uh, you know doing this event for 15 years, but when we started it, nobody really cared about rosé. Because the rosé yeah. was crappy unless you could find something from France that actually they cared about. But even then, almost <laughs> nobody knew that rosé could have been dry. Right, it was always so, sweet. It was, you yeah. know... White Zinfandel kind of thing. So we did our first trade event, which was not Washington Syrah. It was just pretty much any of the distributors that wanted to bring rosé from you know from their distributors to the industry, and nobody showed up, and really like three people. And the second year we tried it one more time, and about ten people showed up. And I'm thinking this is just you know not going to work. But I believe. Then you that, added the cool you know, whites aspect. I think. Well, eventually we added the whites because you just needed to give people a little bit more of a range, just in case they're not all that into uh, rosé. And so now, really, it's uh, been selling out every year. But it took about five to six years to get any momentum. And now everybody goes, "Oh, rosé is cool and it's new and it's like it's not new. I've been doing this for 15 years. Where have you been?" <laughs> New to them, they pulled their head out of the sand or took their uh, lips off the beer can or their kind of Hefeweizen, if it were. Uh, But this Rosé Revival is coming up. It's just this Wednesday, and it's sold out. 
well, it's going to be sold out. It's so it's going to be beautiful weather, and it's going to be on the first time ever on the east side. So we've done it for twelve years in a row at Ray's Boathouse uh, over in Seattle, and this time we finally decided to uh, give it a little bit be- of a change and move it to the waterfront over in Kirkland. Yeah, excited to uh, pour Coral Wines Rosé, and how many wineries participating? We're looking at about thirty-five wineries that'll be there, and then we usually have a couple of distributors that will pour some international wine as well. So almost everything at this oh. one is now local along with usually two or three tables of international. And is there, uh, I know that sometimes you'd like to add that uh, the the allure of an award or a recognition during this event? Is there a, a tasting and evaluation at all? Well, what we've done is we've essentially morphed our judging into People's Choice Awards. So what happens is when uh, wineries don't win, they get a little uh, kind of tweaked at the judges and the process. And <laughs> if it's not a really, you know, concise, thorough process like you do with the Seattle Wine Awards, and this is a little bit more informal, then they get upset. So what we've decided to do is just kind of turn all of our awards into really casual, kind of fun People's Choice Awards. Yeah, that makes sense. Everyone gets a, gets to be included in what the hell these judges know anyway. <laughs> Speaking with David LeClaire, the founder of Seattle Uncorked, uh, you also made some wine at one point called Big Smooth. Tell me about that. Yeah, that was kind of a crazy project. It was a collaboration with uh, John Patterson and myself, and uh, we essentially bought some uh, some bulk juice that has, when Columbia looked like they were going to go out of business, and decided you know we were going to blend it and do something fun with it. So we bought about six barrels and uh, called it Big Smooth, and it was pretty smooth and uh, we weren't really sure how long you know how how well it would sell so we decided to just bottle part of it and then uh, kind of give it a trial run and it did okay but it wasn't like flying off the shelves so then after six months we decided to bottle the rest of it and when we went to take it out of the barrel it was now called it well let's say Stephanie, his partner, called it Big Sock on the Tongue. So we couldn't call it Big Smooth anymore. It just sucked up that much tannin from being in the barrels. So we uh, did the second Oops. release as Big Daddy instead Big of Big Daddy. Smooth. So Too it had a little funny. bit more edge. Oh, wow. That's right. I was thinking if you wanted to sell it, you just call it Say Kara. <laughs> yeah, right. No, Doesn't no. that make it sell? Let's put an S on there. I'm going to draw it on a cocktail napkin. Yeah. It seems like that's all you got to do sometimes. Yeah, if you're Charles Smith. Well, if you know, and you're Butch Milbrand or something like that. But Charles Smith, man, he's he's done it. He is now the new. Uh, is it, do we aspire to be Charles Smith to sell our brands for 125, 20 million dollars plus, and then still make wine because you love it and it's what you want to do? I see no reason why not. To yeah, do that. <laughs> I know. We want to get a brand. I got it. Coral wines. I want to. Here's my goal: make wine for three years and then sell it to Constellation. Twenty million dollars. There you go. Yeah, that's not happening yet. Uh, But it is year three, so that's cool. So, uh, cool rosé revival and cool weiss this Wednesday, May 10th. Um, But there's a bigger event, which is really exciting because uh, Oregon's coming to town. That's correct. And what, you know, has always been one of my uh, beliefs is that Washington and Oregon should play along in the sandbox better because, for the most part, we do what they can't do and they do what we can't do. So it's not competition. And uh, yet, for some reason, there's this uh, border in between us that seems... It's a river. Crocodiles in that river or something, because people don't seem to like to cross that river. Yet, they will cross the mountain pass and come all the way from Walla Walla, which is a four and a half hour drive, but it's only three and a half hours to Willamette Valley. So, what I don't understand is why they don't come up here more and why we don't go down there more. So, since they are rarely doing an event up here, we started doing Taste Oregon, and this year will be the second annual, and we'll be doing it every year from now on and we bring up about 35 wineries and so people don't have to make the drive 
and we coerce them to, to do the driving. A grand tasting celebrating the diversity of Oregon wine. Taste Oregon Sunday, May 21st. It's 1 to 5 p.m. Down in the Soda District, it's at this cool little place called Metropolis, and it benefits... It benefits an organization called Oasis, which is an, actually an Oregon charity. So this is the first time we've actually partnered with an out-of-state charity. Oh. Um, but wanted to do something to kind of help uh, something that was more in the region that the wineries are from. Oasis stands for? Uh, well, Oasis is essentially an organization that is uh, helping the survivors of um, kind of a sexual... Advocates and Survivor yeah, Services. Yeah, for right. people that have had... Abuse. Uh, yeah, sexual abuse. Problems. Yeah. Okay, well, that's uh, that's great, and that's such a sad part of our society, but uh, heck, we can do our best to help out, um, raise a glass to the survivors and to the organization, but most importantly, really taste um, Oregon wine, and I think it's important to appreciate Oregon, not just to taste one and go, mm, I like it or I don't, but to really uh, respect the diversity of Oregon Pinot Noir, and that's what you put in here, selling diversity of Oregon. Oregon wine, just like Burgundy, we've got uh, the Cote de Nuit and the Cote de Bone, and there's what 25 miles or so of road in, in different sites and soils. And Oregon is very much like that. It's even bigger than Burgundy because there's seven Appalachians, and they even grow Pinot on uh, and the, on the Washington side of Columbia Gorge, which is also part of an. Uh, uh, the Oregon AVA. But uh, how much are tickets? Uh, tickets are $35, which is kind of actually pretty affordable when you think about that when you go down to Oregon now, unfortunately, it's gotten as almost as expensive as Burgundy. Tasting fees are average 20 to $25 per winery when you go in, and they have these ridiculous policies sometimes of if you, do, if you pay $300 worth of wine, they won't charge you that tasting fee. So they've gotten pretty <laughs> proud of their wine, and it's gotten, And a firstborn, you know, yeah, and a left arm. And so here, you, you know, essentially you can try all these wineries. You don't have to pay these tasting fees. You don't have to do the driving. So I think it's a great way to try a huge array of different Oregon Pinots. Yeah. But the other thing is that what a lot of people forget about is that Oregon also has some other regions that are closer to Walla Walla uh, and also uh, further, yeah. further down the south District. and mm -hmm. in the Umpqua Valley. So there will be Tempranillos and things like that. There. All right. Quickly, uh, website that people can buy tickets? Yeah. So it's going to be at seattleandcork.com. SeattleUncorked.com. Yeah. So you can check out for uh, Rosé Revival this Wednesday, May 10th, and Taste of Oregon Sunday, May 21st. David LeClaire, Seattle Uncorked, and a bunch of great or fine Oregon wines. Uh, hey, thanks so much for taking time to join me on Happy Hour Radio. Right, my pleasure. Hey, folks, stick around. Uh, we're going to wrap up and talk about uh, some wine in general. i got a guest here. Uh, his name is Jason uh, Gorski, and he's the winemaker uh, for DeLille Cellars. And uh, if you know anything about Washington wine, I think they're celebrating the 30th anniversary anniversary 35th 25th anniversary yeah i'm ahead of myself this is that whole vintage thing but uh, hey folks stick around we'll be right back on happy hour radio Start your day the right way. John Carlson, live and local, 6 to 10 a.m., Talk Radio 570, KVI. You're in the know with KVI Want to Know Weekends. Here's more Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan. 
right, Seattle. We're having a great Saturday night. It's uh, time for round four, our fourth and final segment. Uh, and I've got uh, a hot new winemaker, but he's not that new, and but he is hot. You can just ask his lovely wife, Veronica. Jason Gorski, winemaker. Uh, you've risen from the the lowly cellar rep position to to lead one of the uh, state's most iconic wineries. Jason Gorski, welcome to Happy Hour. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. Hey, um, I know we're going to uh, talk with you again, and um, but I just wanted to ask you, you've been in the Washington wine industry now for over a decade. Yes. And uh, how many vintages would that be? 12? Uh, 13. This would be my 14th coming up. All yeah. right. So 2017 is the 14th vintage. Now, to have a decade in any region really provides you with uh, the one big outlier in a, in a vintage. And in fact, your 10 years or 14 vintages, as it will be, has seen um, some of the most diverse Climates and uh, harvest conditions, um, growing conditions in, in any season in our, in our history, washing wine. Absolutely, yeah. What what have you learned? Obviously, and we'll tell, we'll talk about it. But just as a winemaker, what's Washington wine to you? I mean, I, are we is it way too young to say something like that, or what can you express? I think that Washington's really diverse. That's really what makes it pretty pretty exciting. It's why you got Californians coming here, you got people from France coming here. <laughs> you know, we, we, we plant a bunch of different varieties and do them all pretty darn well, I would say. So we got lots of vineyard land, good access to water, um, good climate, and you got everything from, you know, lower summation stuff to, to cab gets ripe here in, in most years. Yes. Uh, in most years, we'll put it that way. Well, um, that's like Bordeaux, though, and I tell you, you know, uh, even a, a slightly non-classic year or I don't forget what they call them classic good or whatever they still take time but you'll find a delicious wine at some point in that wine vintage life oh absolutely yeah yeah and uh, you actually came to uh, the Pacific Northwest and worked for a big wine company making white wine I did yeah I started there uh, started at Chateau Saint-Michel in uh, 2004 uh, making white. Uh, that was her, good. Um, those were the boom years, right? Those were, those Four, were the boom five, years. Six. Yeah, it was fantastic. Worked with uh, Brennan was the white winemaker. Brennan and, Layton, yeah. now over at uh, Sixto and Charles Smith Wines. Absolutely. And um, and Bob Barteau had just gone to uh, winemaker for both red and white for Chateau Saint-Michel. So um, some really fantastic people to learn a lot from. What's the what's one grape? In fact, you come from New Jersey, and you've actually made yes. wine prior to this, and probably from grapes that are are not seen here in the Pacific Northwest because we have uh, Vitus vinifera. But you, there are other types of vines. Everyone's seen the Welch's grape juice, or or just the uh, Thompson seedless grapes. That tells you a lot of grapes out there. In fact, there's probably over five thousand varieties of grapes in the world, if not more. I got a thick book from oh yeah, somebody. Um, what is a grape that kind of changed your perspective on who it was and, and how it re- responded? Did you find, uh, like, Grenache or a Cab Franc at that point and say, oh, wow. In, in, in New Jersey or in No, Washington? here in Washington. Um, well, I don't know. Grenache continues to... Uh, I continue to learn a lot about Grenache every single year and the, the limit, limitations and, and potential for it. Um, I actually think Malbec is, is just really, really hot right now and really enjoying making it. We brought it into DeLille in, I want to say, 2012. Um, and been as a winemaking team, just really enjoying working with it and see a lot of potential there. That's curious. As when you, uh, as a winemaking team, when you discuss bringing on a new uh, variety or blend style, do you go out and taste a bunch of um, wines that are already produced in the area and/or from Argentina when it comes to Malbec? Um, a lot. It's, it's two different ways we can go about it. Sometimes it is just doing our research and just knowing the world. Um, we we like to taste a lot internally, different tasting groups, n- not sometimes together, sometimes not. 
Um, and sometimes it also just works what works well for the brand. And in this case, we had every other major board over idle except for Malbec. And uh, originally, you know, first vineyard trip I took with Chris Upchurch, I think we were in the past, and I was like, hey, does Red Willow grow any Malbec? It just seemed to make sense to me. And we try to make them all back, and if it doesn't work, we've we've got a place to go with it. So um, it started there. It took us over over a year to actually harvest it and vinify it, but uh, we haven't looked back since. So this is your sixth sixth year, sixth vintage at uh, DeLille? Yep, something like that. Did, did, was there a year where you uh, were able to feel comfortable with the reins in your hand and not be looking next door for your shotgun guy or Chris Upchurch? Uh, or how, how's that dynamic? Uh, you know, I... Chris and I have been through a lot. Like you said, there's been a pretty wide range of of seasons, even since I've been at DeLille. And I would, I mean, I've had a couple moments of panic. Don't don't get me wrong, but you know, one of the things we talk about all the time is we're we're expert winemakers for DeLille. There's yeah. no one better than the people that are there every day. Know the wines, know the brand, know where we're trying to go. So, um, yeah, there's definitely moments where we just go. In 2011, we hadn't picked anything. Uh, you know, but mid-September, it was definitely, yeah. Well, we knew in May we were in trouble. So you've yeah. had a whole variety of emotions and stress and some joy now because the things, 11 turned out to be kind of a cool vintage oh, five years later. Yeah. Hey, uh, folks, um, if you're out and about in the world of wine uh, and you want to learn more about the world of wine, there's an event coming to Seattle July 9th, 10th, and 11th. It's at South Seattle College campus. It's called SOMSUM, an International Wine and Spirit Symposium. This is the first International Wine and Spirit Symposium in Seattle in uh, over 25 years, but we've got South Africa, Bordeaux, Napa Valley, BC, uh, Ch- uh, Spain, and uh, Remy Cognac, and uh, much, much more. Uh, it's SomSummit.com coming up July 9th to the 11th. Uh, I will be there, and I hope that you uh, invest in your education, as you do every Saturday night right here on Happy Hour Radio. Remember, folks, when you're out about, life is always better with a designated driver. Cheers! Cheers!